Fiverr is the world's largest marketplace for digital services, offers both buyers and sellers a digitally streamlined transactional platform. If you need to buy something, sell something, or whatever you want to do on Fiverr, just go to bit.ly slash GOP Josh Fiverr today to get your gig or to put your gig on Fiverr and help support the program as well. That is bit.ly slash GOP J-O-S-H Fiverr F-I-V-E-R-R. This is the Conservative Crusader. Hello and welcome to today's special episode of the Conservative Crusader. My name is GOP Josh. Thank you for joining us today on the Red Future Radio Network. Our guest today is a lawyer and an accountant. He's running for Congress in Ohio's 13th Congressional District. Uh, Greg Wheeler is his name. GregWheeler.com is his website. Mr. Wheeler, welcome to the Conservative Crusader. Thank you very much for having me, Josh. I'm excited. Well, thank you for hopping on. I like on. these longer form interviews, you know. Well, thank you for hopping on with us, and thank you for taking time to, to do a longer form. We try to get as much information as possible. We send the stuff out to the district to make sure they can have their questions answered as well. Uh, so I'll let you start by uh, taking some time to introduce yourself and your campaign, why you're running for Congress again. Sure. Uh, so I ran in the last election cycle, got a very close second place in our primary. We had that weird 60 days because our maps were deemed unconstitutional, and they drew them and then said, all right, go run. And so, uh, you know, we... I did what I could, came very, very tight and spent about one-tenth the money of my opponent and uh, been asked by a bunch of people in the area and, you know, the federal level, state level to uh, get my campaign running to make sure that we are raising funds, campaigning, and doing everything necessary to take back the seat in 2024. And so, you know, I'm an attorney and an accountant by trade. I always introduce myself as an entrepreneur. I've started multiple businesses. Some have failed miserably. Some have been quite successful. One of my businesses was featured on Shark Tank back in 2014. And, um, you know, I've, it's shaped my politics. Every time I make a dime, the tax man shows up with an open hand. It's incredibly frustrating. And it really, you know, in my opinion, significantly stymies the ability for us as modern Americans to live our lives. And I, you know, I looked at the situation of our government the reason that I'm running today is because since January 1st of 2021, the United States federal government has spent $15.5 trillion. That's three times the cost of World War II. It's dangerous. It's not ridiculous. It's not silly. It's not unfathomable. It is dangerous what is happening right now. I believe it is the greatest threat to our country. If you can't afford to put a roof over your head or food on your table, all the other political issues become less important because you can't focus on anything other than feeding you and your family. And so we, we, you know, we saw inflation that was record last year and they're saying that it's under control now it's not really and the real reason that it's under control now is because they have spent two and a half trillion dollars this calendar year alone it is ridiculous what is happening and we need people in office who understand fiscal policy sound fiscal policy and are willing to get in and actually vote no on things that raise our budget and raise our deficit because it seems like it doesn't matter what party uh, they, they they talk a good talking point and then they get in office and they spend, 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 spend because that's popular and it gets reelected. Well, we can't continue to keep doing that. And as a young guy like I am, it's going to affect you and I more than it's going to affect the 60, 70, 80 year old people in office today. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're absolutely right. And um, fiscal policy is very important. I, I I love Thomas Massey, how he has a little debt counter that he wears on his shirt. Have you seen that? He programmed a little deck counter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just sits there and it's just, it's fantastic. So I understand what you're saying there. So why are you the best candidate in this race and in the primary and general uh, to serve as the U.S. congressman from this district? Well, I think that, you know, my experience and my knowledge speak for themselves. But just in case you haven't looked at my resume, you know, I have multiple master's degrees and a juris doctorate. I have a significantly above average understanding of how the economy works, how the government works, how to draft laws and what the potential consequences are of implementing laws. And it seems like in part, many of the people who are elected for office don't understand that in order for you to spend money as a government, you have to earn that money. And the only way you earn money is this, is through taking it in taxes, which is affecting the people who are paying the taxes ability to earn money themselves. And the more that we are spending, the, the more problems it is causing we're all talking about how there's so much going on and so much wrong, but we don't really talk about the fact that there are two and a half million federal employees, not counting a single member of our military. We have over 440 federal administrative agencies. You know, recently, you know, within the last two months, we had the train accident in East Ohio, right? And uh, it took weeks 
for the multiple, what is it, 16 federal administrative agencies that are involved in dealing with a train accident to properly respond to it. It's ridiculous. It's so much red tape. It's bloated and it doesn't work. And, you know, I have a history both as a a published author, et cetera, in in addressing these issues and these topics. And it seems like a lot of people just are playing the talking point of the day, but have no actual substance behind what they're saying. You know, I've never served in public office. And in some ways, somebody could say that that's a negative for me. I would argue that it's a strength because it means that I'm not behoven to all of the contacts and the establishment. And I really came in and surprised the establishment in the last race and they realized my message resonates. So the other question is, you know, besides why would I be the best congressman? This is, am I the most likely to win the general election of all potential candidates who could run with issues that we agree with? So if you're a Republican, who is most likely to win the general election? And that's me. You know, I have a background in e-commerce. I know quite a bit about digital marketing. My performance in the last election with one-tenth of the money demonstrates that I know what I'm doing and how to get what I need. And so the, the you know, that is ultimately, unfortunately, politics is broken into two major categories. You have the public policy side, and you need to have people in office who understand public policy. The other side of politics is politicking. It's the game. It's getting elected because if you can't get elected, you can't affect public policy. And right now we Republicans have a, you know, we didn't perform very well in 22. We didn't perform well in 20. The the reality of our situation is, is we need to pick candidates who appeal to the independent voter and who appeal to us as Republicans, because if we don't do that, we don't win the general election and then we're stuck with the Democrat who's there. And that is what has happened in our district here. We have, uh, you know, Amelia Sykes is our new Democrat incumbent. She should never have won. It's a Republican leaning district and I intend to take it back in 24. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate what you're saying. And and there's a lot of districts that were winnable in Ohio, uh, three big ones that were just kind of abandoned. And so I understand what you're saying there. We haven't performed as well. We did great on the top of the ticket. So Ohio is seen as a shining beacon of Republican politics. When you go into the to the nitty gritty and the actual races there, we were kind of lackluster. So I appreciate what you're saying there with taking the seat back, winning this race. Um, what really compelled you, if you had to name just like a, an event or a certain period of time, to actually run for Congress, uh, put yourself out there, put your uh, sure. career and campaign uh, at risk to, to run? If you remember the old redistricting situation, you know, th- my district is all of Summit County and about a third to half of Stark County. And then we have a very small sliver of Portage County. And the reality was, is when when redistricting was going on, there were no Summit County candidates running, even though we account for 70% of the voters, well over 70% of the voters. And so I thought that was ridiculous because I always thought the representatives are supposed to represent the people who they're representing. I should be representative of the district that I live in. And I, you know, to me, that was partly why I ran. The other reason I ran is because my dad's on a fixed income. Some members of my family are not well to do. A lot of my friends, uh, you know, they were struggling. Last year, the average cost for a household in the United States just to live went up by $6,000 plus. And, you know, in 21, it was equally atrocious. The, the situation in part, you could say, well, COVID and the COVID policies, that's what did it. No, no, it's not. You know, it's bad fiscal policy and it's bad foreign policy and it's just bad governance has really made it much more difficult for the average American to live, including myself. And I'm tired of it. And I'm tired of it affecting my friends and my family. And I'm capable of addressing it. And so I'm going to step up and I'm going to do something about it. And, you know, that's what compelled me to run because I saw how it was affecting the people close to me as well as myself. And, you know, I can complain about it or I can step up and do something about it. And to me, I think it's necessary for us as Americans to realize that we have an important part to play in our civic duty to ourselves and to our neighbors. If you are capable of serving as a school board member, you should run for it because maybe you can add something to help your neighbor that that neighbor will benefit from amazingly. And I think that a lot of people understand that intuitively. And that's really the reason I ran because I can, I have the skill and knowledge necessary to fix some of these problems that are hurting everyone. And uh, I think I've, I've been called to do so. I want to thank you for saying, not saying because I want to be in Congress or because I want to be in politics, but actually having a, a meaning and a reason behind why you're running. And I think that's, that shows, and I'm not trying to just like suck up to you because you're doing the interview or anything like that, but I, yeah. I, it shows that you actually have a purpose behind your campaign. Other people running for office nationwide really don't have a reason for running. They're just running because they want to run or they want to be in Congress. 
So I appreciate the message you, you bring to the table, and I really want to thank you for that. And I understand what you're saying completely and why you actually are running. Well, um, let me say this, right? It would be nice to call myself Representative Wheeler, but the reality is I have to work, you know, full-time job and then a second full-time jam campaigning. It's a great deal of stress. It's a great deal of effort. I would really just prefer not do it, but our country is in the middle of a culture war and we're in the middle of such dire fiscal irresponsibility. If we don't fix it in the next few years, we probably won't have a country. Absolutely. And so uh, do I want to complain? Yeah. Do I want to have somebody else fix it? Probably. But can they do it? Maybe. Can I do it? Absolutely. And so I have to step up and it's a, you know, absolutely. There's the benefit of when I, when I get to call myself representative Wheeler, who cares? We have real work that needs to be done. And I think that the, you know, people who have have served our country for centuries, you know, the last 200 plus years have really showed that that American spirit of, I'm going to quote a Democrat, but you know, not ask what, country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And in this case, it's what can I do to help me and my fellow men take care of America so that we're here for another century. Absolutely. So you're telling me you're not running for the fancy lapel pin, right? You're not running for the, nah, the 119th lapel pin? I have an American flag lapel pin. That's fancy enough for me. Yes, sir. Um, so to get in kind of the politics of it, because we now have a Democrat congresswoman in your district. According to the redistricting uh, at 538, which is a source I use regularly to, to determine the district lines, um, your district is supposed to be two more points Republican than Democrat. It's supposed to lean more conservative. Trump won it by two points. Um, what happened in 2022 that made the Republican nominee lose? How are you going to capitalize on their losses and, and the mistakes they made to put your Republican politics above and, and win the race against the Democrat, Amelia Stikes, in the general? Well, so the candidate was Madison Gilbert. I'll say her name so she gets some free ad buy. And, uh, you know, the reality is, is that I, I think I don't like the Madison bash. Uh, she was my opponent in the primary and I supported her during the general. And I think that, you know, she has a great future for us as a young Republican. And I hope that she runs for a you know, state rep or state Senate seat and, and eventually builds herself up to the position of where she can run for a congressional race again. I think that the problem that she ran into is, is in part, she got pregnant. Now that's not an excuse. And I'm very happy for her and her family. I'm glad the baby's healthy, you know, excellent. But I think it did affect her ability to have a strong ground game because she was, um, you know, dealing with a child. Right, <laughs> like, right. <laughs> what an amazing thing, but like a difficult thing to to also deal with while you're in the middle thing. of a political campaign. Yeah. And then I think the other reality is, is that, you know, she, her campaign website has not been taken down. You can go look at it now. Um, it, it's very Republican and it doesn't speak to the independent voters who swing a general election. Because the reality is, is once you've won the primary, you really do need to transition. Politics is a game. Uh, everybody understands that. But if you can't have a message that resonates with voters who were not already going to vote for you because they vote down the ticket as are, if you can't encourage somebody who might vote as a Democrat or might vote as an independent to vote for you because your policies and your personality resonates with them as an individual voter. When they walk into that ballot box and they vote, they have to know Greg Wheeler is going to take care of me. He's going to do exactly what we need for our district. He might have an R next to his name, but I've met him. I've talked to him. I've talked to the people who follow him and who work for him. I know that he is going to do an excellent job in Congress. And I cannot say that Madison did that because you know, I knocked on thousands of doors and I, a lot of people just had no idea who she was. Her marketing really was uh, not on point. And I I think that that's what happened. You can see we won statewide. We won locally. You know, Christina Rogner, Bill Romer, Steve Dimitrio, Bill, you know, Bill Young, Bob, Bob Young, all these Bill Romer, Bob Young, all these people who, you know, state rep and state senator in different positions. We won our, our appeals courts positions. We won all kinds of different Republican elections, but we didn't win the U.S. House seat. And that's based on if you just look at the House seat and you look at everything that was within the U.S. House seat, Madison underperformed. And I think that if we can have a candidate who is a reasonable Republican, and I say that purposefully, a reasonable Republican who resonates with everybody, even those who aren't staunch Republicans, they'll win because it's a Republican-leading district and we should have won in 22. Absolutely. Um, so you talked about having to appeal to the moderate voters, appealing to the independent voters. What are you doing in your campaign to do that? Well, in part, it's, you know, being careful about the rhetoric that's used. It's difficult in the primary because there's this tendency and this real temptation as a Republican to just say the most, quote, Republican thing you can do. Um, and in many ways, I, I believe, you know, like I'm a very strong advocate 
Second Amendment rights. I'm a very strong advocate of limited government. And, and so when you, you when you're looking at how you're going to go about explaining those things, you can just emphatically emphasize your point and say, oh, this I am correct and this or you can explain it. And what I have found in this is the real reality of the politics game that's very frustrating to me as somebody who didn't get involved into it until last year. I would say well over 60% of people in the United States of America don't give a rat's ass about politics. They're completely disinterested. They're apolitical in every context. And when they hear about political issues, they usually just turn off. And my experience has been that if you can talk to somebody for more than a minute and explain to them why it's important to them and why your solution is correct, even if they are apolitical, you have found a loyal follower who has gotten more interaction with somebody political than ever before and has suddenly become an actual interested party who usually votes Republican because the Republican ideas are significantly superior to Democrat ideas. I mean, it doesn't take very much for the average person to sit back and recognize why weight, raising the minimum wage to $20 an hour is an absolutely stupid idea. It doesn't take that much for the average person to step back and realize why defunding the police is an absolutely stupid idea. And so those stupid ideas are seen as stupid by people who pay attention. But if the average voter isn't paying attention, our job as candidates for office is to make them pay attention by having messaging that resonates with them and isn't just beating a drum and being, a, oh, I'm a great Republican. It's here are why these issues are important to you and here's why the solution I'm advocating will work. And that's what I've been doing. That's why I was as successful as I was in the primary with one-tenth the money and 60 days to run, as I will be this time. And the reality is, is that when we're playing politics, a lot of people want to treat politics as if there isn't a game and getting elected isn't important and there aren't strategies to do it. And we need to have candidates in office who recognize not only is public policy incredibly important, but the other side of politics, the game and how to get elected is, if not more important, I would say the entirety of the importance. Because if you can't get elected, you can't implement public policy. Exactly, exactly sir. And I, I agree with you. Um, I, I get bragged on or, or mad at the people mad that I say that I agree with you a lot. But I agree with the people I have on the show. That's why they come on the show. They, they I agree with what they say. So um, <laughs> one quick question here. Uh, if Madison runs again or if another opponent runs again, will there be a debate in your primary? And will there be a debate with the congresswoman in the general election? Well, there was a debate in the last primary. Madison didn't show up. And a lot of people voted for her, even though she was the one of the seven candidates who didn't show up. Now, I went to that primary and there were six candidates there, including myself. And clearly my performance in the primary speaks for itself. I would love to have a debate. I know Democrat Amelia Sykes won't stand up on a stage with me. You know, I am a trained debater. I love it. It's something I consider it, you know, a sport. And it's something that I really enjoy just arguing besides the fact that I really enjoy politics and arguing, you know, just discussing what is the best policy. I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong and I'm willing to argue the other side's opinion sometimes just for the practice. And anybody who's willing to stand up on a stage with me usually steps off that stage going, Greg at least knows what he's talking about and he's a reasonable person. And so I would love to have a debate if there's somebody else who's running. I don't know if they want to stand on a stage with me, though. Now, can <laughs> we do the kind of arrogant to say, but, uh, you know, I, I've been to debate competitions. I've been to debate competitions. If I knew you're a trained debate, debater, I wouldn't go up there either. Now, can you do like a, what they did in Georgia during the runoff with like the empty podium? Can you do one of those things and, and have like one of those yeah. scenes there and just debate the moderator? I mean, you're debating the moderator anyway as a Republican. I, you know, I, I figure if you're running for public office, you, you should be able to go on to a long form interview like this and answer complicated and difficult questions that you might not want to answer and which certainly puts you in a difficult place. Because when I'm in office, I need to be responsible to and answerable to the people who are in the district. If I'm going to be the representative for Ohio's 13th district, then I need to be the representative Ohio's 13th district. And that means I need to be reachable. And so I should be reachable and that you should be able to ask questions and you should be able to get answers for me. And if I can't do that, I shouldn't be elected. Absolutely, sir. Um, so let's say you are the representative, you are elected, you're in Congress. What is the first bill you sponsor? So the, I'm also a realist and I look at what happens when I get into Congress as a freshman congressman, one of 435. And I realize that you need to build influence and you really have no influence the first day you walk in. And so what I am looking at doing while in office is to use as much influence as I have and that which one vote we've realized can be actually very powerful. We saw that in the speaker vote in January, right? The, the reality I think is that what am I trying to get done? I'm trying to have the government stop spending money. 
every time they pass a bloody law, they have to fund that law. And every time they pass a law, they have to pay somebody to enforce it. I would like to stop passing laws. Getting into office and not doing anything is in fact doing something. It's just not something you can send in an email to your constituents and say, look at what I did today. I'm literally going to go into office and do as much as I possibly can to make sure that the federal government isn't encroaching on us Ohioans' lives. I'm going to stop us spending money, and anytime they put a bill before me that significantly or even marginally increases the federal budget or increases federal spending, I'm going to make sure that it's cut somewhere else and that our eventually our budget is balanced because we cannot continue on the path that we are now. It would be popular for me to go in and fix 25 problems and spend $6.5 trillion doing so, and I would get a lot of support from these people who go, look at Greg solving those problems, except for what you're doing is you're solving one problem and creating another. And right now, the number one problem facing us is fiscal irresponsibility in our government. If our government collapses because it can't afford to pay for itself or our economy collapses because we have overtaxed the economy, the reality of our situation as average Americans is that we have become far worse off because of those government policies. And so when I get into Congress, I would love to say that, you know, I'm going to pass this bill, and as a result of this bill, it's going to solve this problem. And I have problems that I think need to be addressed besides fiscal responsibility. For example, if you really want to look up a solution to a problem, look up zipo.org. Zero interest principle only. It's a solution to the government subsidized student debt problem. Because right now we have approximately, it depends on which numbers you look at, somewhere between $1.7 and $2.5 trillion in student debt across the United States. That in and of itself is not a problem. The difficulty with student debt is that it has such high interest rates that the average person who has student debt, who does not have a high paying job, can't get out from under it. And so you essentially sign up for this debt, which is not even bankruptable, at the age of 18, and you take on this debt from 18, 19, 20, 21, when you're still essentially a child. And, uh, you know, I was a complete idiot when I was 18. And I know you're younger than that. So I don't take that as an insult on you. And I hope you don't. But, I, you know, what I have learned in the few years of experience I have gleaned to my current time from when I was 21 is astronomically different. And I absolutely would not have taken on student loans at the age of 18 if I knew what I know now. People do. Right. And so I would argue that the best solution to that is since it's already essentially a government subsidized debt and the majority of student debt is actually held by the federal government, you remove the interest rate from it so that somebody pays only their principal. You borrow $100,000, you pay $100,000, and that payment, once it's done, is finalized and you don't have to deal with the fact that there is a compounding interest which significantly increases the amount of money. If these were private loans, people would really have to reconsider them. And I think that. It's a very complicated problem. That's one solution that isn't going to fix every problem in that. But, you know, you look at like Biden and he wants to give $20,000 per student loan borrower. That's the stupidest. Okay, let's just assume that that is a good idea and we implement it today. How does that address the fact that tuition is too high, people are still taking on student loans, okay. and as a result of all those problems, 20 years from now, we're in the exact same situation we are today. So does the next president then give another $20,000 to everybody? Right. It's just it's putting a Band-Aid on an amputated arm and it's not going to stop the bleeding. So you're not addressing the root problem. You're providing a stupid symptom that really makes you look popular to people who are not paying any attention, which is part of the game. That's great. But it's not it's absolutely awful public policy. And if we can explain in the game why that's bad public policy and provide a better solution. My concern is that we as Republicans sometimes fail to actually provide a solution to a problem that is a legitimate problem, instead treating it as if, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's hard to do if you don't have boots. Exactly. And the left is so fantastic at just manipulating the, the, the youth vote. I've noticed that just in the circles I'm in with people like, oh, the left wants to give us free college and they want to do this and that. They're so good at lying to the people. And I, I want to say, yeah. I, I never heard of the strategy of just not doing anything in Congress. It's a, it's a fantastic idea, really. I think anything Congress does would be better than, or nothing, uh, doing nothing would be better than what Congress does. So I, I support your idea there, sir. Um, yeah. So either you'll be taking office with the second term of Joe Biden or a Republican president. Let's assume the worst. Let's assume Joe Biden's reelected for a second term. How would you work with him to, to do, well, I guess you don't want to do much, but if you had to do something... How would you work with Joe Biden and the Democratic Party? So my goal, if I'm stuck working with the Democrats, is to come up with, you know, here's we'll step back from your, your question for half a second. We'll come back to it because I'm going to give a little bit of a framework to help the listener understand the way that Greg Wheeler thinks. Right. I think that Republicans are reasonable. 
that's why it starts with R, Republican R, reasonable R, right? We are people who are logical. We are people who can remove our emotions from uh, our situation. We can take ourselves out of it and we can look at something objectively. We're not subjectively oriented so that, you know, we, we can see that there is a problem. And if someone can show us that there's a problem, we're willing to come up with a solution to that problem. And we're the best minds in society to do so. Democrats generally are very more uh, emotionally oriented. And that is a great thing. We need emotionally oriented people in society because emotions are real and the human element is incredibly important. And they're dedicated, you know, dedicated Democrats. They will lay down on a grenade for a cause that they believe is just. You know, if they will, as a party, they'll support Adolf Hitler if he has a D next to his name because they are that dedicated to the party's success and the cause because they realize they have to win the game in order to get into implement public policy. The problem is, is that they're absolutely shit. And excuse my French, but they're just absolutely awful at coming up with good solutions to problems. They're very good at recognizing when problems exist. They're very bad at actually solving the problems. And we as Republicans are very good at solving problems, but our weakness is recognizing where the problems exist. And so what we need to do is kind of work together, not compromise. This isn't about compromising. It's about saying, okay, Mr. Democrat, you're saying that this is a problem. You're saying that there's a healthcare issue. Well, I think anybody who reasonably looks at the healthcare situation can recognize that the average American cannot reasonably afford to get sick. And if you do get sick, there are significant consequences to you financially, which would probably be better to not have. There are a multitude of potential solutions there. The Democrats presented Obamacare. It was moronic. It doesn't work. And the Republicans, instead of coming up with a superior solution, instead just complained about the fact that Obamacare doesn't work. That's not a solution. If there is an open wound, you don't complain about the fact that they put the wrong Band-Aid on and instead say, let it bleed out. You put on a different bandage. And we as Republicans need to work with someone like Biden, who's in office, to recognize that there might be real problems, but come up with significantly better solutions. Because I don't want a Democrat to come up with a solution that makes everything a federal issue when the states should be in charge of something. You know, most Republicans believe there should be some form of government health care. We just don't think it should be federal health care. We think it should be at a state level. Well, that distinction could be argued by us as politicians who are running for office, and it could be argued by people like yourself who are on the radio show. But it's rarely ever discussed and said it's, a, oh, they want and oh, they don't want. Well, that is not an accurate estimation or an accurate representation of what the political circumstances is. So to answer your original question, right? I get in, the worst happens, Biden is in office and I'm in Congress. How do I work with Biden? I need to find a problem that he has said is a problem, recognize that it might have some truth to it. That's why 60 million plus people identify as Democrats in the United States of America and vote to support him. Far more than that, right? And so the, okay, Here's the problem. I'll come up with a solution that's not stupid like his will be, that actually solves the problem, costs us significantly less money, and maybe do some good for all of us. Absolutely, sir. So, okay. I don't know. You know, let's say, is it is it one nation or is it two tribes? Exactly. Exactly. And I, I want to go back just for a quick second to what you said about healthcare. Um, just a, a general idea I have is that the federal government finds too often that one size fits all is what they think needs to happen. Wyoming does not need the same health care program that California needs. Ohio does not need, no. need the same health care as Florida. Um, no. So, so you, you want to stop pretty much the one size fits all and, and send the power back to the states as intended. Absolutely. You know, you can, you can provide funding, but even the funding isn't, doesn't need to be one size fits all. You know, the, the, the ultimate problem we really do see is uh, rooted in a, in a constitutional issue that's antiquated. Have you ever heard of Article the First? Just going to slide and sound slightly off topic, but I believe so. I'm, I, I'm familiar with the name. I'm not familiar. It's with the, the Congressional project. Apportionment Act. So it's most people know the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, right? How would you feel if you found out it's the third? Historically, it's actually the third proposed bill. I did not know that. Most people don't. So the second is our current 27th Amendment it was ratified in the 1990s, and it affects the ability of Congress to raise its own pay. The first is the Congressional Apportionment Act. So if you give this to Google and you look up Article the First, it's the first proposed bill. It's actually the only one that, you know, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson agreed on. <laughs> As a, it essentially makes the number of people in a representative district fixed so that, you know, it'll be 60,000, 80,000, 100,000 people in a congressional district. And so that the consequence is that you have actual representatives in the districts who are more comparably fixed 
to a size. Right now, if you're in California, the size of a congressional district is like 1 million per. And if you're in Wyoming, it's like 500,000 per. Right. Well, the difficulty in doing a one size fit all public policy is, is that when you're sending money out to all the districts equivalently, some of the districts are significantly larger or significantly smaller. And that one size fit all public policy at the federal level is stupid, rooted solely in the fact that we have 435 members in, in Congress. And yet those 435 members in Congress represent different size districts with different needs. And the districts are growing at a disproportionate and unequivalent rate. The amount of people who live in New York per district versus the amount of people who live in California per district versus the amount of people who live in Montana per district is significantly different and their needs vary. We would be better off treating the United States like 50 countries under one federalized system, but we don't. And it would also be better to think of the 435 districts as separate entities, but we don't. And so that's, it's a, an antiquated way of looking at governance that's rooted from the 17, it's a perfect if it were designed and implemented the way that they'd intended, but because we have a fixed number, the demand on each seat increases because the supply is fixed. So this is probably it causes lobbying. Time. It causes gerrymandering. It's a problem. Yes, sir. Uh, would you support expanding the House of Representatives? Uh, yeah, I think that that's a solution. And that's, you know, a lot of people talk about term limits. I think the term limits is a solution. I don't think it's the best solution. So, you know, I signed the term limit pledge because I think it's the most likely thing to get passed. But the and I don't have any interest in being in office for a long period of time, so it doesn't affect me. Like, great. Right. But the you know, I, you know, if you're in there for 40 years, that's ridiculous. That's not the purpose of this. You're supposed to get into what you can serve your country and then move on with your life. And we aren't doing that. But the reason we aren't doing that is because the demand is so high for the seats that the person who's in there is so much more qualified to get it. It's almost impossible to get them out. Putting a term limit in theoretically solves that. Having more seats, though, would also solve that because the demand would go down. Bring more people to the bring more people to the table in Congress. Yeah, you know, in 1912, when they implemented the Congressional Apportionment Act, which is what is actually the name of that law, not the original Article the First, right? So the two different things with the same name. It's very confusing. Mm -hmm. But when they implemented that, the average congressional office had two staffers. You have any idea how many it is now? Twenty-four, I think. Yeah, it's twenty-three with 24. a part-time. Yeah. Uh, I knew it was something up there. So it's 24 is not wrong. 24 is with part-time. But so, so the, you know, we have grown 12 times the size. Right. You have well, well over 15,000 people who work on the Hill that are not associated with a specific Senator or Congressman's office. Why right. is the, the, just the Hill so many people? It's ridiculous. It doesn't need to be that way, but in part it is because of the growth of our country to have over 320, 330 million people, but have the same number of seats. And that's, a, it's a, it's a problem that stymies all other public policy. That's, that's, you know, not really good. It's a kind of an inside baseball problem. It's not something you want to, you know, in a long form interview like this, we can talk about it, but you know, if I'm on Fox news and there's 60 seconds to chat, it's not something you can bring up because the average voter is not even aware of the problem and they don't necessarily get a long form interview to explain why it's a problem, why it affects them and what the solutions are. But, you know, you look at healthcare to go back to that as the original question, right? It is absolutely silly to think that here in Ohio, we need the same healthcare requirements that they need in Alaska. Right. And it is absolutely ridiculous to think that Florida and Texas and Mississippi and Georgia and, you know, a multitude of 50 different little independent countries are going to have the same wants, let alone the same needs. Exactly. And so when you're passing a federal law, it is best to have it be as local as possible, because very simply stated, it is much easier to knock on your mayor's door when you have a problem than it is to knock on the president's door. If you disagree with me, let me know. Give me a phone call. I'll drive you to D.C. and I will laugh and watch as you try and knock on the White House's door. See, that's funny because I'm planning a D.C. trip right now. You have to have a 21 days notice to go inside the White House to take a tour. You have to go through your yeah. congressman's office and they assign when you can be there. Like, yep. This is supposed to be a, a, a country that they represent us. But that's besides the point. I'm getting off topic here. Um, I, I want to get back to what we have because there's a lot of important questions here. Um, we saw the politically motivated indictment of President Donald J. Trump uh, this last Thursday. He's running for president again. It's a political persecution, in my opinion. Uh, what is your reaction to this? Do you think Trump should be indicted? What do you think should happen? I don't have enough information. We don't really even know what the details of the indictment are. Bearing in mind that I'm an officer of the court as an attorney, and I always try to limit my statements when it comes to elements of the law, just because I have an, an ethical and legal obligation to 
uh, be careful about what I say on those topics. I do think that it's absolutely ridiculous based off of the information that I have. And, uh, you know, I don't think that we should be weaponizing indictments. I can see multiple other political officers who have acted similarly to what it appears to be alleged that, you know, uh, President Trump did. And so I, I just it doesn't make any sense. It's incredibly frustrating. And I do think that it's a incredible error in establishing precedent because well, the Republicans don't like what Biden did. So then we start indicting him and then the next president, the next president. Like it's it's kind of like um, adding seats into the, you know, packing the court for the Supreme Court. All right. So we change it from nine to 11 and then 11 to 13. And then eventually you have 571 people on the court because it's just constantly getting worse and worse and worse. Escalation is a thing. And I don't think that it was good to do this. And so, you know, my thoughts and prayers are with Mr. Trump as he goes through this. And I, I hope that the court, I trust that the court system will uh, find a fair and amicable result to this, which probably be, they just kick it out. You know, just because you're an indictment doesn't mean that you're actually convicted of anything you have to go before a jury of your peers my expectation is is that before a jury of the peers nothing happens from this i appreciate that and i agree with you and i i appreciate your willingness to answer even though you you mentioned how you can't say certain things so i appreciate that as well not just completely avoiding it um yeah what are your thoughts on banning tiktok and the whole restrict act that's in congress now um people want to ban tiktok they say it's a, a chinese spy device which might be correct what are your thoughts on banning it completely and just using this restrict act to try to do that? I don't like censorship and I don't like the government telling me what I can and cannot do. I think that when we use that, that tool of the government, it must be couched in great care. And I'm very, very, very concerned about us saying that Chinese government can, can collect personal information, but the, you know, private Google, Facebook, Amazon, all of these large institutions which are collecting large sums of money off of information and data that they're collecting off of this is basically the same as what the Chinese are getting. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Now, I'm also not somebody who is highly researched on the tech implications of TikTok. And I coming at that with a slight amount of ignorance, I'm willing to bow to those experts who say that this is a danger, to which point my response is no problem. Every federal government and every state government facility collect people's private cell phones and hold them in a locker until they leave. And if you own or are provided a government phone or some form of technology, you are not allowed to have that device or that app on that device, right? That to me is not an unreasonable because the government gave you the phone. So as a result of government giving the phone, they should be able to tell you what you're using the phone for. But on my own personal cell phone, in my own home, on my own time, it seems like an overreach of the government, even if it is a potential danger. And I just, I don't know that I'm in support of that. It's government overreach. All right. I agree with you there. Um, This is kind of just a question I'm kind of curious of. uh, If you had to like define yourself as another politician in Congress, Another senator, representative. This I didn't talk about this before. I'm sorry. Um, what would your just just answer be? I, I you remind me of Rand Paul a lot. Is why I'm asking this. Yeah, I'd, I'd say the closest person that most people would see me is Rand Paul, but I'm significantly more to the center than Rand Paul on my willingness to. You know, I wouldn't even say that because he's pretty willing to work with people if you give them a reasonable reason why there's a problem, and he's willing to come up with a workable solution, which is kind of the way that I think too. You know, I, my, my problem is, is that not always necessarily that there isn't the problem, which is that the government of the level of government that you're trying to implement the, the solution with is wrong. You know, I want to keep everything local. And, and I think that that's, you know, kind of how he also feels. I think that the money is one of the biggest powers of the government. And as a result, one of the biggest dangers of government. And a lot of people in office don't pay any respect to that. And he does. And so I would say, yeah, Rand Paul's probably closest to me. I just I was listening to what you're saying. I'm like he sounds a lot like Rand Paul here, and I'm a big fan of Rand Paul, so that's okay with me. Um, but <laughs> what are your thoughts on? And this was a listener question. What are your thoughts on reinstating the gold standard for America? Um, I don't think it's even remotely possible. I like the idea in theory. the The difficulty with it is is you have to essentially destroy our existing currency and implement a new one, and so, then you have the consequences of transitioning from one currency to another. Which is not really feasible at this point. We've dug ourselves too far in yeah. the hole. All right. Well, you, can... you've already dug the hole and you've already buried yourself and you're 12 feet under. Go ahead and try and dig out. Right. All right. And so I just, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, I would prefer that over the government arbitrarily printing money, but we don't, we don't I have just a, don't think a, a way to go back solution. now. Yeah. Pretty much. All right. Um, 
Senator Vance from Ohio here in the great state of Ohio has introduced language to introduce English as the national language uh, for America. We don't have a national language currency. What are your thoughts on that or currently? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that um, I have no I have no problem with that. I think that, you know, you have to print government forms and you have to communicate with the government and the public. And I think that having a national language that makes it clear that we're going to have English forms isn't unreasonable or impractical. I do think that there's a a threat in the game for people who are on the left side of politics to take advantage of that by calling it racist or xenophobic. And I don't think that that's true. And so we as Republicans need to very carefully and clearly communicate why that public policy is the best public policy. And I think the way to do it is this. I think that it is absolutely appropriate to have immigration into the United States. Anybody who is a winner, we want here. Anybody who's willing to drag themselves out of their familiar, to leave their country, and to try and risk it here in the land of opportunity is somebody that I think is amazing. Because, you know, there are two types of people in the world, right? You have wolves and you have sheep. And America is a country comprised of a bunch of wolves. All the people who were dealing with the Irish famine 88% of them stayed, 12% left. Six went to Europe, 6% came to America. What are those 6% of the population of Irishmen? Well, they're all the people who are crazy enough to risk leaving their family and their friends and everything they've ever known, get on a boat, risk dying on that boat, come here and have absolutely nothing to guarantee that they're going to be successful. But when they get here, can you imagine how America would be without Irish immigrants? We would be an absolutely awful country because they have done so much for us. And I think that what they've done for us speaks for itself. And the same applies to Chinese immigrants, applies to Russian immigrants, applies to Italian immigrants. Every nationality is represented here in the United States, and we are a better nation for being that melting pot. But the thing that unites us all is the fact that they came here and learned English and adopted the American ideology. And it is a proud thing to be an Irish American, an Italian American, a Chinese American, a Japanese American, a Nigerian American, because you can have both cultures. And as a result, we can benefit from you being both an American and Nigerian. But we all have to be able to communicate. And so that fundamental expectation of everybody who's here to adopt that American idea and that adopt that American language is necessary for the success of us all to use each other's strengths because if we can't communicate we can't succeed and i think that we as americans have spoke english as our predominant language for the entirety of our existence as a nation and the fact that it's even contentious for that to be the language of our country officially seems slightly stupid to me (laughs) so so i'm kind of hopping around on my notes here but i want to get you on the immigration question really quick would you support any sort of temporary moratorium on immigration into america to solve the problems we have here domestically first Now, I know you're in support of it, and I hope that what I just said might have given you a little bit of a framing of how I think about it. I think absolutely not. I think anybody who wants to come to our country legally and wants to be a boon to our nation by providing us benefit and contributing to become a a functioning and positive member of society should be let in. Should we just let anybody in? No. And should we have an easier method for people who want to legally immigrate into our country? Yes. Right now, It is incredibly incentivized for you to come here illegally because it's too difficult to come here legally. And again, I want every wolf here because if there are wolves in other countries, they're benefiting from them. I don't want sheeple. The the people who just follow what they're being told are not American. Americans, we're we're the Wild West. We, We have a gun strapped to our hip. We take care of ourselves. We expect a little bit of individual freedom and responsibility. Freedom isn't free, and we understand that intuitively here. That's why we're the oldest democracy in the world, and that's why we're the most successful democracy in the world, because the people who come here have come from somewhere else and realize what amazing opportunity is here. And I would say most immigrants, in my experience, are very, very, very staunch Republicans. So I'd like to have as many immigrants as possible because I like having more Republicans. <laughs> I know you're in support of a moratorium, but I think that the problem temporary. with it, uh, I'm even, even temporary, even temporary, what's what is temporary? Because if it's 30 days, then they can say it's masks for two weeks and then we'll let everybody out. And then it ends up being two years. I don't like things where the government is doing something temporary because it ends up not being. Well, I respect that position. Now, uh, you, you said bringing people here legally. What about the people who are here illegally currently? Should we am, uh, give them amnesty? Should we provide them anything? No, and we... it's a it's a crime. So it's a complicated problem that's rooted in a lot of really stupid public policy that's been going on for decades. 
you know, you can watch Cheech and Chong films from back in the 60s and 70s, and they're making jokes about the Mexican border back then, and they're still relevant today. And so, you know, the, the problem with illegal immigration is that it is illegal and you're committing a crime. Now, how many people are here and what are the logistic ramifications of moving tens of not 20, 30 million people out of the country? I don't know. And that's where the amnesty argument comes in, because it's a legitimate problem that needs to be addressed. But we as, a, as Republicans often want to treat it as if it's a black and white issue. And I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Honestly, though, it's not an issue that I'm heavily researched on and feel comfortable providing like a, a policy argument on it because I haven't given it enough thought because I think that it's like down the list of importance in the next two years, not high enough for me to be focused on. It's not to say that it's not important. It's just that we have way, way more urgent problems to address. And if we don't get those problems addressed, there'll be no country at which point. What's who cares if there's a border? Right. There is no country. Right. I, I respect that. And I appreciate your discourse as well. Uh, so I want to kind of hop around here a little bit because I know we're running uh, kind of short on time. You're a busy man here. Um, just real quick, the Dobbs decision of the Supreme Court, you kind of hit on the court earlier being expanded crazy. Um, would you support any sort of a national restriction on abortion or heartbeat bill? Um, I, I The problem I have with it, right, every time you pass something at the federal level, and the answer is I, I am Catholic, pro-life, and believe life starts at conception. So I am in support of public policy that advocates for continuing life, and it, 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 I can give you the canned language. Problem I have it when you're looking at it at a federal level. So at a state of Ohio, two thumbs up. <laughs> the problem I have is that if you make something a federal issue, and you give the federal government the right to do that. What happens when the Democrats take back the House and the Senate? Am I going to have people in California and Illinois and New York telling me in Ohio what abortion laws we have? Right. So I think that that's absolutely reprehensible, and I don't agree with their positions on it, and I don't want that. We have 50 independent little countries within our federalized system, and every time that we give the federal government some power, we're taking away from the states, but we're all very dangerously allowing other states to tell us what to do. And if they don't agree with our position on things, the risk of it is very extreme. Could we pass a constitutional amendment? Absolutely not. It's just politically not in the cards. It's not something that's popular enough. We don't have enough seats. And so if it isn't a constitutional amendment, which makes it difficult to change, every time you pass a law, you just got to kind of flip it. And so it flips every two years. It's ridiculous. It's dangerous. And we do not want to open that door. We open that door with good intentions and suddenly the door is used against us. I respect that. And I understand what you're saying. And um, I, I kind of agree, really. I, uh, people are like, we need abortion banned at every level in every country and every state. If, if people choose to have abortion in their state, they're the idiots that want to have abortion. I don't support it, but we can't do things nationally. We don't have the people for the constitutional amendment. It'd probably get overturned by the court anyways. So as Bill Maher said, you know, they think of it as killing babies. Yes. But he says, I'm okay with that type of murder. Okay. I am not right. But the problem is, is just because you make something illegal doesn't mean that people won't do it. Right. It's illegal to sell heroin and yet people still do. And so if we make it illegal to have abortions, people will still have abortions. So our solution, ultimately, from a public policy standpoint, is to reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies as much as can possibly be done so that there is never a need to have an abortion. That's the solution to that problem. Instead, we treat abortion like it's, it's, it's the actual problem, when it's the symptom of a greater problem, which is unwanted pregnancies. And that is a societal issue that should not be addressed at the federal level. It is a local issue and it is a state issue. It is a family issue. It is not something that me as a guy in Congress should be making a decision on, on behalf of Ohio's 13th congressional district. Well, thank you for that. And I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I want to get a couple more questions in here really quick. Cause I, I know we're uh, kind of running short on time. Um, just last week, we saw a tragedy in Nashville where uh, six people were killed in a school shooting, three nine-year-old children. What can we do on the federal level to make schools safer? Nothing. You could give money. The problem is, is the federal government as a government has three predominant functions. It is there to print money. It is there to uh, arm the military. And it is there to coordinate treaties with foreign nations. And you could argue the fourth service is to handle disputes between each of the individual states. Every time you give it some power beyond that, 
So, you know, the Commerce Clause, for example, would be the argument used for a lot of federal laws that are passed. And they're essentially saying that because there's interstate commerce, because your car might travel from Ohio to Pennsylvania, there needs to be a federal law that addresses car minimum standards. Really? Does it absolutely need to exist? Right. No. Could we exist without it? We did for hundreds of years. But as we pass more and more legislation, because people get in office and say that they have to do something, because you can't just get in there and not vote on anything, because then voters will go, well, you didn't do anything and they won't vote on you, which is, as we've already discussed, that's my, I want to get in there and not spend money and not pass laws. Right. Um, You know, they keep having to bring on more and more federal administrative agencies. So now we have 440 of them and you have 16 different organizations that handle a train accident. Like it's stupid. It really doesn't make any sense. Right. The, the problem that we're running into when you look at school shootings is that it's a local issue. You know, I'm a member of multiple school boards and we have safety protocols in place and there's a lot you can do. Other than giving money, the federal government needs to stay out of it. And that's just unfortunate to say, but there are limitations on what the government can do. And, you know, as Ronald Reagan said, the nine most dangerous words are, or, you know, the most nine most terrifying words are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. No, stay out of it, federal government. This is not a federal government issue. I think it's absolutely awful that people are shooting children or adults in schools. I don't think there should ever be a school shooting. It's crazy. But unfortunately, there are bad people out there. And just because you pass a law doesn't mean people won't break the law. And this is an example of we could pass more laws. It won't solve the root problem. Do you think because something is illegal doesn't mean people won't do it? Right. Do you think gun laws will help prevent anything as well? I mean, that's that's what the left is pushing for is more gun restrictions. Do you think that would stop anything? No, I think if you go and you look at Israel, where people are literally at the 7-Eleven with, you know, an an M-16 strapped to their back and everybody's openly carrying, everybody's very polite. You know, you go. I think that the, the data is clear. Places that are armed are usually more civil. I don't think that if you go in and try and rob a gun store, anybody has any expectation that you're going to walk out. Right. Right. The the NRA convention, one of my friends is going there this, this week. The NRA can, or next week, is probably the safest place in the world, really, when you really yeah. think about now, it. I, I'm not saying you can have a bunch of seven-year-olds carrying guns. So if you're at an elementary school, are we expecting teachers to carry? No, I don't think so. But there needs to be some protection in that school. And the reality is, is that the places where they see the most gun violence are often case. They're the places where there are the least guns allowed to be carried legally. Yep, gun and, you know, the problem with gun laws is that it ignores the fundamental purpose of gun laws. You know, most people don't know this. And I was in Hong Kong during the umbrella movement and the Chinese government basically told the democratic protesters of Hong Kong, we don't care what your opinion is. You can only vote on these specific people. And they are all pro Beijing. And they protested. And they fired so much tear gas on the millions of protesters in the streets that tear gas rained. And so they all carried umbrellas because there was so much tear gas that you couldn't walk in the streets without it getting into your eyes. And they carried yellow umbrellas because red and yellow are their colors and red is communist. So yellow is pro-democracy. I will never let that happen in my country. I will never allow the government to ignore my lawful protest and fire tear gas on me unlawfully because they don't want to hear what I have to say. And they won't as long as me and my fellow men are armed because the rights of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It's very simple. And every time that you try and pass a gun law, it can be couched in reasonableness, but you end up in the same problem. People run the government. People can be inherently bad. And as a result, the government can be inherently bad. And every time they pass a law, framing it as if it's with good intentions, well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and we need to be careful what laws we pass. Absolutely. And I, I like that you actually quoted the second. And then the, I don't know how often you listen to the show. One of the jokes of the show is I have my Hillsdale College copy of the Constitution <laughs> on my desk at all times. And so well, I just kind of. I have. I don't know where mine's at. I've got the same one. I don't know. You guys, can, I don't think you can see this bookshelf, but excellent. <laughs> yeah, I just keep that on my desk at all times. So I love that you quoted that. Uh, a couple quick questions on foreign policy, um, and then I want to ask you about family, and then uh, how people can learn about you. Um, what is our role in Russia and Ukraine? Uh, it's a complicated issue that's made significantly more complicated by the fact that we've already made absolutely bad decisions. And as a result, we're stuck with those decisions. If Donald Trump were elected and he were to go into office, he would still have to deal with the last four years of Biden's poor decisions. And as a result, it frames everything with that in mind. I would love to say that we didn't send them billions of dollars. I would love to say that we weren't involved. 
we didn't. And as a result, we're stuck with the consequences of that. I don't know if you can hear my dog, by the way. My just a little bit. It's, it's not that big of a hi, 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 puppy. Uh, so would you support any more money or resources to Ukraine? Uh, and the current state of things, I think you have to. Because the, the question becomes, how do you deal with uh, the Polish border and the NATO ramifications and the fact that we've already invested as we have? I would not have liked to. And I think that it's best for us as a country to stay out of things. We are treated like the watchdog of the world, but I don't know that we can realistically do that anymore. All right. One more thing on foreign policy. I'm going to, can we pause here for half a second? Come right back. Yes, sir. Recording in progress. So right now in Israel, there's a lot of conflict with Iran and the whole situation there. What is our role in that, in that whole conflict? Oh, by the way, thank you very much for letting me pause. You can't time when somebody knocks on your door. <laughs> I understand. I understand. <laughs> and the dog goes crazy. Um, so Iran, and I would say we have a long history as the United States of treating ourselves within a imperialistic style of thinking and that we want to control what everybody else around us is doing. And I think that that's good. We're world power, and I don't want the world to just be, you know, left uh, to its own devices without us, you know, wielding our influence and making sure that we have a pro-American foreign policy. I think that we as a country need to do what is in the best interest of America, which in many instances involves us having interactions, being allied with fighting in wars, et cetera, with foreign nations when it's in the best interest of the United States. And the issue with Iran is is that as a nation, they really just very publicly and very privately are acting contrary to America's interests. And as a result, a lot of negative was coming from that, especially in American interests throughout the Middle East and Europe and other parts of the world. And we don't really see Iran's effect here domestically because they don't really have the power to do it, but they could. And so we need to, you know, be very vigilant about our security as a country. It's why border, for example, is important. But the the difficulty with it from a foreign policy perspective is everything is framed in many, many decades of previous decisions that I had no control over. And so, you know, uh, nukes, nukes as an example. Okay, well, we let them get nuclear power and then suddenly they have nuclear weapons and suddenly they're able to use nuclear weapons and they sneak one into our nation and then set one off in DC, what's the consequences? You know, are we supposed to just turn that country into glass? Probably. What's the rest of the world thinks? Like nukes is a dangerous thing. We as humans seem to not be mature enough to deal with that technology. And so it's a it's an incredibly complicated that we can probably spend more than two hours going in a hundred different questions addressing one by one. Would say that the biggest takeaway for me in Iran is as you can see I don't know if you paid attention to this. I know a lot of Americans didn't notice. They had humongous protests earlier this year. I saw a little bit about it, not not enough to yeah. comment. And they shut it that. down. And they've been they've been giving the death sentence to people who protested. So the problem with Iran is not its people. The problem with Iran is that it has a government that has overexerted its authority over its people, and as a result, they're acting evilly. We as Americans want to make sure that anything that we do with regard to Iran is geared towards the government of Iran and do what we can to support the people of Iran because the people of Iran want out. They've protested. They've done everything that they could, and the the military literally came in and stopped it. They stepped on them like a bug. And so are we as Americans going to exacerbate the plight of the Iranian people by further stepping on them? It's a complicated question with a multitude of issues that have to be addressed. And, you know, there are very few 10 word answers in politics. You know, um, was it Bartlett from the West Wing in the television show said, you know, 10 word answers will kill you in politics because it's very few. It's very rare that there's a simple answer to a political question. And usually when that happens, it involves body bags. And the issue with foreign policy, I would say from an American standpoint, is that in the last two decades, really through Obama. Um, Obama was awful and Biden has been awful. And prior to Obama, it wasn't as much of a problem, but we as Americans did not adopt American first. And that term has been coined by Trump candidates, but the, the where you are placing America in a higher priority, because I really don't give a rat's ass what is in the best interest of France if it 
disadvantages the United States. Exactly. And so if I'm having a negotiation with France and they're a member of NATO and they're not paying an appropriate amount of money into that NATO treaty, well, pay your fair share or we back out. Because what is in the best interest of America should be what America focuses on. And the fact that that is not commonplace for all politicians across both parties confuses me immensely. There's really a lot of foreign policy conversation. And this is coming from a guy who's traveled to over 100 countries. It seems like a lot of people talk about foreign policy without any understanding of America's place on the world stage. And America's place on the world stage is very simple. World to world power. We have the most knowledge, the most power, the most money, and we are supposed to wield it carefully. Otherwise, somebody else will take it. I have to agree with everything you said there, sir, completely. And it's disappointing to hear about Iran and how they just trampled the protesters because that's something that America has such a fundamental right of is to protest. And it's yeah. something that's kind of been taken away and been we, we've kind of been scared into not protesting uh, within yeah, both conservatism and the, and the country and, and as a whole. So I appreciate your take on that and how you're not just we need to put everything behind we can and, and stop Israel and, and or not Israel, Iran. No, and, and I appreciate I, you know, I, I like here's the thing about Israel, right? If you look at Jerusalem, J-E-R-U-S-A. You know, I think that Israel is is a country by itself stuck in that region who is largely surrounded by enemies, and we are their ally, and they are our ally taking care of our interests there. And if we ever have to really fight a war against a country there, a real war, we use their airfields. <laughs> we need to be strong with Israel, but the, the problem is couching the Israel issue with other nations. Israel does not have a problem with the people of Iran. It has problems with the government of Iran. Right. We need to attack the government of Iran. And I think that there are ways to go about doing that from a, a foreign policy perspective that are nuanced and complicated. And we need to treat them that way and not treat politics like it's the 10 second talking point on Fox News. One more question I have for you, and I appreciate your answer for that. But um, the bedrock to any healthy society, we want we want a country to exist is family. Mm-hmm. Is there anything yes. you can do in the federal government to help help make it easier to start and grow and, and, and help your family uh, continue forward and actually start a family in America? That's an instance where the answer is actually probably yes, but not the way you're thinking. You need to implement public policy, especially tax policy that incentivizes. You know, in, in public policy, you have two ways you can make somebody do something. You can use the carrot or you can use a stick. And so in governance, we can say, okay, we don't want somebody to shoot people, so we're going to make it illegal and we'll punish them when they do. But what we rarely do is we rarely implement the carrot and you don't incentivize people to purchase a gun safe, as an example. Well, you could do that and then people would have gun safes and then you would significantly reduce the number of child deaths as a result of a child inappropriately gaining access to a firearm, discharging it and injuring themselves, right? Okay, well, so how do we make public policy that incentivizes people to have families? Because we need to have families. If the population shrinks, that's not good. If, If, you know... If only because we won't be able to sustain Social Security. Like there's a multitude of reasons why it's negative, and I think that they're self-evident. But okay, so we assume that it's a it's a positive to have families, and for we need to as a government encourage families. So the thing that you do then is, is you make it beneficial for people to get married. You make it beneficial for people to have children. And the reality is, is that we already do that a lot. We can do it more, and we can do it differently. But it is already a tax advantage for you to be a married couple because you pay less in taxes than if you were both filing individually. It is already a benefit for you to have children because they are, you know, your taxes go down the more children you have. And so as you can structure our public policy to incentivize that behavior and to encourage that behavior, but I don't know that we necessarily want to like pass specific laws that force people to do things that's not good so you want to you want to incentivize not punish i appreciate that and i appreciate your your goals and everything you've said so far in this interview and everything you've said in the interview this is pretty much the end of it here um thank you for taking time with me today um how can people find you find greg wheeler uh, on social media on the websites how they can help volunteer or donate or learn more about you outside of this interview and um just plug yourself sir (laughs) Absolutely. Well, so you can find a great deal of information and links to other information if you go to my website, gregwheeler.com. It links to all my social media pages. I'd love a follow if you uh, would be so kind. And, you know, I think that uh, everybody has an opportunity to contribute to a political candidacy through multiple ways. 
You can donate your time. You can donate your money. You can vote. And if you can't vote and you don't have any money and you don't have any time, give me a prayer at night. <laughs> I'm going to need it. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult and stressful thing to do to put yourself out there in the public and to run for office. But, you know, I did it before and I talked about it with my family and we're going to do it and we need to solve these problems and I can do it. And that's why I'm running. And I really appreciate people listening for an hour to, you know, hear about who I am and what I am. And if you have any other questions, you can, uh, you know, email me through my website and I really appreciate everybody at least considering me. Well, thank you for your time today, sir. And thank you for taking time and, and just sitting down with me and answering my questions and not hopping around the issues or anything like that, really giving a straightforward, honest answer. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, Joss. I, hey, this is awesome. And I appreciate you bringing me on. These long form interviews really do give a voter a far better understanding of who's running for office and how they feel and what their plans are. And I, I'm glad that you're doing this because I think that it's uh, an important tool that we as voters need to have access to. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. And thank you for, and you're welcome anytime. If you want to do a short interview on, on a random episode, just, just give me a phone call or a text and, and we got you on, sir. Um, Sounds thank, good. Thank you all for being here. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. We'll be back Wednesday with a brand new episode here on The Conservative Crusader. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Conservative Crusader. 